welcome back to Educate, the alternative classroom experience brought to you by me, Katie Conn, from my London living room. Now, in each episode of Educate, I learn a lesson from an informed guest, and the overall teaching objective is to create a more informed societal dialogue. So in this week's episode, I am so delighted to be speaking with the actor and director, Peter Mayer, to discuss his upcoming documentary, The Boy from the Wild which is going to be released this year on Apple TV. How amazing. Peter certainly had a childhood that was very different from most, certainly very different from mine. Peter grew up surrounded by surreal wilderness in South Africa with elephants and rhinos in his back garden. Saving animals and protecting the surroundings were his normal day-to-day activities. And this has instilled a lifelong respect for conservation. So in this week's episode, I'm going to be discovering all about Peter's unique upbringing, his life as a filmmaker and actor, and the importance of conservation. Welcome to the Educate Classroom, Peter Mayer. Lady Kate, thanks so much for having me on. It's lovely to be here. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's amazing to see some sunshine in England. It's uh, it's very, uh, very rare you see that kind of little yellow thing up in the sky. I think you are definitely right there. I sort of opened my window this morning and I was like, am I in Britain or am I in Spain? <laughs> I want to talk today all about your brilliant work as a conservationist, an actor, a director. Honestly, what do you not do? I'm very impressed. I've been very, very lucky with uh, different ad- adventures and opportunities, experiences, you know, a lot, a lot through choice, a lot through direction of others, a lot through motivation of others. But yeah, I've been very lucky. I mean, I've personally done a good old deep dive on the internet. I have absolutely adored watching your documentary, The Boy from the Wild. It is so brilliant. I, number one, thought that the cinematography was stunning. I felt like it was a documentary to absolutely rival anything that is at the top level of nature documentaries and it had this feeling of complete authenticity in my opinion it just felt like it was very earthly and unique to you which I think is what I adored about it so thank you for that no you're welcome I appreciate it I mean I can't take all the credit I had a great team that I, I brought on board so the big thanks is to the talent of those guys more than anything I appreciate you taking the time to watch it and, and it's really nice that you've seen a different side to it because that's exactly what I was trying to bring to it it's it's not your everyday story it's not your everyday typical kind of conservation message it's you know a little bit bigger and it, it was a long kind of project in the making I'm 37 now it's literally been a 37 year project before we kind of really get in and discuss things properly for any listeners of educate I know who you are but could you please introduce yourself just for the benefit of listeners who is Peter Mayer among many things <laughs> Um, well, my name is Peter Mayer, and I'm originally from South Africa, but I am also British because I had an English uh, English father. I grew up in a very um, unique and, and beautiful environment in South Africa on a, on a safari. Uh, but at the same point, I am a hotelier. I've lived and worked all around the world, uh, opening and managing hotels. Uh, at the same time, I've uh, got into acting uh, as well as presenting uh, commercial work. Recently, I've just done the documentary and the book, which uh, has been just a, a lovely sort of sentimental project, but with great success. And on top of that, I've just opened a, a high-end photography studio in London, helping uh, 
uh, a lot of other actors, talent uh, break into the industry with good portfolios and headshots. That's actually uh, where we're chatting from at the moment. So that is me in a nutshell. Uh, <laughs> a few uh, other fun things in between, but that's that's basically me. It sounds like you are doing a lot of very interesting and very different things. How can you be a hotelier? Is that how I say it? A hotelier? <laughs> you got it spot on. Yeah. Wow. It sort of that sounded like the fake news media coming out of my mouth. I, did, I just discovered the word as it fell I, from I, my I, lips. I enjoy, I enjoyed the little sort of posh hotelier, you know. <laughs> <laughs> hotelier yes I, I like it when I, I'm referred to as a hotelier yes thank you gosh I just can't stand my voice sometimes but we move it's fine no it's, um, it's good it's good it's nice it's all about the moment you picked it up perfect all about the moment so just to kind of set the tone for anyone that hasn't seen your brilliant documentary or read your brilliant book what was it like growing up? I was incredibly privileged. I was I was very lucky as a as a child to you know to be born and, and raised in a, into into that environment. My father, if if I set the scene, my father who was English um, was a property developer, uh, retired relatively young, but in his early years he'd gone to South Africa and he did a bit of schooling and um, fell in love with the place. And at one point when he was sixteen, he was walking across the valley saw this place and the Zulus who are the tribal inhabitants of South Africa, the, the, the main, you know, kind of warriors of, of the country referred to that land as the Valley of Heaven. Um, it has this beautiful kind of three waterfalls falling into it, uh, the river flowing through. So you've got lush vegetation, beautiful high hilltops, just epic views. And my father as a 16 year old saw it and, and fell in love with it and said one day, you know, his dream was to have a safari and, and he was going to buy it. And literally um, close to 30 years later, he, he, he did it. Um, and the same year that he, he bought that place, I um, I was born and, and literally my first footprints and everything was growing up there. I, I was just very lucky to, to have had parents, uh, particularly a father that had a vision of doing something that was not only powerful um, in the sense of the, the beauty of the place, but um, pivotal and important for the sense of conservation and, and animals. And um, the epic kind of story about it is, as he was taking um, animals out of captivity from around the world and bringing them back into the wild, um, all at his own expense, his own love, his own heart, his own will, um, to just to do something that was going to be truly his. And, and ultimately, it created a an incredibly beautiful conservation story. Because I mean, we brought in a couple of animals at the time, and now they're just flourishing. You know, they've had babies of their own, families of their own, grandkids of their own, et cetera, et cetera. They, you know, they created a, a safe and natural, um, in, you know, family lot in a, in a beautiful, safe environment that was all done by my father. And I was lucky to live in that. Just being in nature and giving animals a second chance in a way to roam free and mm. to live authentically. I just think it's gorgeous. Now, I just want to ask, obviously, you mentioned their conservation. Just from a, a totally brand new perspective, what does conservation mean? I think conservation could be many different things to very many different people. You know, whether you want to look at it from a, a sort of uh, environmental impact, whether you want to look at it from a wildlife impact. Um, for me, it is respecting and protecting both wildlife and nature. Um, I think it's uh, really kind of finding the, the niche and the combination to understanding, sadly, today, the importance of being protective and, and nurturing and saving um, something that we've ultimately, in some respects, tarnished over time um you know a, lo a lot of people forget that we're here chatting on this phone and you know we some of us might have driven here some of us might be getting wi-fi to listen to this whatever but at one point we were all wild just like them living in the exact same environment and i think conservation is a, re a reminder to people of where we've come from what's important and really fight for that <music>
So obviously the book came first. It's an international bestseller, can I just add? Thank so what inspired you, you to write The Boy from the Wild? How did that come about? Um, I mean, sadly, it's um, not, not, not from a good place. My, um, my father passed away and it was, um, the book is really a tribute for him. Uh, I, was, I was living in Dubai about seven, seven years ago and I, I got the, the sad call from my dad that you know, things yeah. weren't very good and you know, he, wasn't, um, he wasn't given very long, nothing that they could do. Um, I left everything and, you know, he, he sadly passed and, you know, he was, we were there with him at the time with my mum, uh, myself yeah. and my mum. Uh, and anyway, I'd, I'd always wanted to, to tell the story of where I grew up um, for, for, for a long, long time. But my father had always wanted us to stay very humble. You know, we, we, we came from an incredibly privileged um, upbringing and location, but at the same time, we didn't want to show off about it there were not even you know my many of my school friends ever knew the the life that I lived and and all of that so when he passed I kind of felt that you know maybe that was that was the time and to tell it in a very different way and I think you know how fate would have it it probably also needed that time because when you go back and you see the place you see what my father was able to achieve you know if you spoke about the story 20 30 years ago you wouldn't have seen the impacts you know now you go back you had like eight giraffe you've got over 300 giraffe you know the, the how evolution and time has helped kind of make that work it, it it was the perfect time to do it in a sad sense and it was i was on a film set at the time with um liam neeson i was i was a featured extra on something called the commuter um, and they, they very kindly kind of placed me with him and him and I were, were chatting um, while we were on set for about two weeks. And he was the one who gave the final encouragement. You know, I was telling him the story and showing him some pictures, you know, and I, I can't use the words that he used, but he was basically like, you know, um, you screw it. You've got to do it. You know, who else has got a story like that? Certainly on this train that we were filming at Pinewood. Um, wow. And, you know, I thought, you know, if someone like like Liam Neeson is is interested and, and, and wanting to know more about it, I thought, yeah, let's go for it. Let's let's do it. So that's how the that's how the book came about. That's so exciting. There's so much to unpack there, my goodness. But I just firstly want to say your father would be so proud of you for what you've done and elevating yeah, and telling you. his story. And I just I think the fact that you've you know, you turned such a, an awful, horrible personal tragedy into something that's, you know, going to be loved and adored by so many. I just think, no, thank you know, you. yeah, I think it's amazing. And also very exciting <laughs> that Liam Neeson uh, gave you the go ahead to kind of give you that fire in your belly to, to kick off with it. So great. Well, it, it, it was, it's, it's lovely. And I mean, you know, incredibly small for him, but just priceless and gigantic for me and a, a huge turning point in some ways so no it's it's huge thanks I did send him the book and I actually you know the old-fashioned writer handwritten letter not many people do that these days no I did that for him and um I, I believe he's read I haven't heard anything since but um anyway so it's lovely. uh it, it, was, it was a lovely moment oh I'm not surprised so why did you then obviously you'd written the book what was you know the moment when you decided to turn it into a documentary yeah I mean I I originally wanted to to kind of create a trailer for the book um I wanted to get a visual so that people could actually see what it was about and I thought you know it was a, a wonderful time to go back and get some get almost some closure on the place because my father had sold it a while ago and it was you know, I was obviously kind of grieving for my dad and, and just wanted to, you know, to kind of feel the presence again. So I thought, you know, it's a great opportunity to go back to where it all started, film something. 
Um, and I originally called it Returning Home a Boy, um, kind of doing a small little short video to, to showcase kind of going, whatever age you are, you always go back to that kind of inner kid in you that just gives you the best times of your life or the things that make you what you are. Um, and I, I kind of started like doing it. We were kind of you know, creating a little mini brand around the whole thing and, and just having some fun. And when we were down there at the lodge, it was the head of National Geographic and Disney for the Far East, India and the Far East. Um, and he was just there as a guest. Um, and he'd been staying there a couple of times and loved the place and, you know, just had no idea about the history and what it was about. So, you know, he kind of saw that there's a film crew and what was happening, blah, blah, blah. And um, anyway, him and I just got to talking. We sh showed him some footage at the end and he was just like, wow. He's like, he's like, firstly, the footage is really good for, you know, respectfully um, from my side as a kind of director, film producer. I, I don't know what's below a rookie, but certainly that um but i had a really good team of people and we were producing some really nice um beautiful footage and and um he looked at it so I, I then told him the whole story what it was about and he said listen you know turn this around you know make it in something bigger you know this is a film this is a series and i said well look you know i'm on a minuscule budget here um you know let's you know i'll see what i can do so we ended up turning it around into a 40 minute documentary and enough from sort of three to five minutes um, up to something longer that we were able to um, to make interesting. We we flew back again to to kind of finish off more of the footage. Um, it took a while. I was on a very tight budget, um, but it was yeah that that was the kind of moment to say well yeah let's make it bigger and and see what happens. And I didn't expect it to go anywhere. We were on Amazon Prime for a while. Um, which was stunning, you know, and, and such an honor. Uh, and we had this through distributors who were reaching us. Um, so I was I was so lucky to see where this was going. And, and you know, out of nowhere, the distributors have got us on a worldwide contract through Apple TV. So, you know, now it's off Amazon Prime waiting to get on there. And, you know, just incredibly lucky um, by coincidence, again, to, to have some encouragement. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's kind of how it came about. Um, so we, we kept it in line then with the book of the boy from the wild and, you know, keep it all singular. It just makes it a little bit easier as a brand, but, um, yeah, very lucky. I mean, it's just insane that, I mean, it's obviously very deserving to be on these brilliant networks, but what was it like when you first found out that it was commissioned? Do you know, strangely, it's, um, it's, it's for my dad more than anything. And I, I think it was, um, I, it's the same reason why I did the book. It keeps him alive in some ways for me. You know, it's something that will be eternal, you know, versus like we've done the, the funeral and, and it, you know, he's gone kind of a thing. It's like, it's something that's there. It's something that keeps his legacy going. It's something which shares a message and puts his name towards it. Yeah, yes, I know, but my name is there kind of making it, but in reality, it, it, it's all him. So I think for me, like I, I was kind of gushing for that. Like I was, you know, really kind of like proud for him and, you know, inwardly on a professional level, proud of myself. You know, I knew it was a challenge, but grateful for the, the wonderful people that helped put it together because it literally was on, you know, I had a funny chat with the VX uh, VP for Paramount who uh, became a connection through film and, and whatever. And he, he, he goes, okay, I reckon this is about a quarter of a, quarter of a million pound project. And I was just like, <laughs> whatever, mate. <laughs> I was like, it's literally, literally five grand. <laughs> and I think it was a wonderful laugh. And it was, all, I was really proud of that moment. I think that more than anything was like, yeah, go on my son. Like, is that the English expression? Go on my um, son. Go on my son. And I felt so proud and grateful for my team. Like I had some 
just a couple of really wonderful guys that um, helped put this together and, and with a lot of love for, for conservation. I mean, I sponsored their trips and a little bit of pay here and there. I really just didn't have a lot to give, but it was a, it was a love story uh, for myself personally. That was a real kind of, I, I climbed Everest and, and got to the top and jumped off of the parachute and, you know, landed in a, a beach in the Maldives kind of moment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. I would feel the same. Getting that message, I'd just be like, what? I definitely drink quite a lot of wine, I think, in celebration of maybe even something a bit more sparkly. (laughs) (laughs) So with regards to actually the physical filming of the documentary, Mm -hmm. what was the what was the biggest challenge? The biggest challenge is probably logistically pulling it all together in the first place, getting people um, on the right schedule, the right time. And and you've got to be careful because we're northern hemisphere here in um, UK, southern hemisphere down there where the seasons are going to be different. Uh, you, you know, I wanted to pull the team at the right point and be able to to kind of make that happen. That was probably the first most challenging part. Um, the next was then wildlife filming is not like filming a movie where y- you get people to a location. Yes, there might be some weather challenges, but, you know, people can kind of do what they need to do. They can rehearse, they can get ready. You can tell them what to do and they're, you know, they're there. You can't do that with a wild animal. Um, you know, good luck. You've, you've got to have a lot of, <laughs> lot of patience, you know, and if you want to get that right shot, you've got to wake up. I mean, we were up, you know, sometimes sort of five in the morning. We're filming late and, and you've, the other thing in, in, in the wild is, Animals are more active in the morning when it's cooler. When the weather gets hotter, they're out, they're kind of chilled. And also for filming, you don't want it to be when it's too bright. Um, Mm. You need it to be kind of low light. So if we wanted the sunrise, the sunset, see more animals, beautiful kind of shots, that's how we created that cinematic effect and, and, and putting in the effort. So those were definitely challenging. But, you know, do something you love. You won't mind what time you wake up because it's passion. It's love. It's something that you really kind of want to do. Um, so, you know, we, we didn't mind if we had bags under our eyes. You know, there was a good beer at the end of the day that cures it. So it was it was good. You know, we, we enjoyed it. Yeah, it's just you've got to be you've got to be careful with wildlife. You know, we obviously wanted to get, get close. And I mean, I knew the boundaries that we could do, but you never never know sometimes you've got to be prepared those are challenges when you're in the wild and it's being aware of your environment and being patient I mean the idea that a rhino could be chasing you down with a camera is unbelievably (laughs) terrible what are the insurance premiums on that honestly um (laughs) yeah let's not go there (laughs) yeah i know it's like do they write that into the t's and c's (laughs) no it would that would have been when we had our budweiser's at the end of the day that would have been the perfect bud ad (laughs) that is so funny i would love to find out all about your earliest memories of encountering, I, I don't want to say scary animals, yeah. the animals that you probably would be a bit afraid of. <laughs> the scariest animal of all is probably my mother. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if I didn't fall in line or do my homework or be back on time, oh my gosh, you know, the wooden spoon was out and mum chasing me. That was, don't worry about lions and snakes, watch out for mum. No, I mean, I, you know, humans can be just as scary if, um, you know, if we don't handle people correctly or, um, respect, etc. I think my earliest memories were really the adventures. It was beautiful to be connected with not just wildlife, but kind of an extended family. <laughs> People had, had like to think or compare it to like Mowgli and Tarzan. It, it, it was nothing like that. It was just 
we were privileged to be in an environment where we were able to have some tame animals and others that were tame we were able to rehabilitate into a wild environment and, and give them that freedom Th those adventures for me in the beginning were probably the most pivotal I, th I think the others were every kind of day going further and further out to explore you know and go past the places that your parents say don't go it's a little bit like if you ever seen um simba and, and nala when they're going out and they say yeah but perfect example you know don't go to the elephant graveyard like, <laughs> and naturally you know you you put the thought in off you go um and it's 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 testing your strengths as a kid it's testing your boundaries and you know you you have to learn from those experiences very quickly to have survival um, it's a different environment in some respects to here, but the concrete jungle, for instance, like London, you know, kids will have the same thing, you know, don't go too far, don't talk to strangers, don't, um, you know, um, run across the street without looking left and right. It's no different to me when I was out there in the sense of, you know, don't go up to an animal that you don't know, don't jump over a rock that you haven't checked behind, um, you know, there could be a snake, there could be something, don't go down into a dark hole, there could be a, a different predator down there that you don't know of. It, it, you're learning very similar lessons just in a very different environment and I was just I think because so many people never had it um, I, I, I realized at the time and I, I think I put this in the book we were uh, certainly me but we were living the dream without quite knowing it was a dream and I, I, I referred to my brother for that because we grew up in that environment without really knowing what other kids were going through it only was when we started to travel and really explore that we realized how privileged and lucky we were it sounds just really fascinating, especially I, I, I just can only think of then when you said, you know, don't jump behind a rock if you don't, you know, you haven't checked what's behind it. Now, I don't want to give any spoilers, but <laughs> in <laughs> so in your documentary, there were two moments where I think me personally, I just shuddered and they're to do with snakes <laughs> I'm so terrified of snakes I just can't even imagine I once had an experience when I was in Australia and I was walking through it was the jungle and I just remember <laughs> I just honestly was like on the verge of a panic attack I held a GoPro stick in my hand and I was like batting everything away expecting there to be a horrible snake which I then found out when we got to the viewpoint uh the next people that came up said that they had seen a big snake Obviously panic ensued, I was terrified. And all I can think of is how on earth do you exist in a world where you know that there are snakes around you? And there were two moments where you have been bitten by a snake. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Well, it's two officially, but I had a few other occasions where I had near misses, so I was very lucky. Could you explain what happened? I'm just... I, I think when you, I mean, you, you naturally went into a different environment and you're going to see things where, again, the snake is in its natural environment. You know, if I'm starting to walk in its territory and, and things happen, my, my first snake bite was um, probably a bit more um, unique. My father uh, changed the safari like three different times. I think the first one was the, the sort of honeymoon kind of villas along the river. And then we had the huge floods that wiped everything out a couple of years in. And then the second phase, we had this, uh, it was called Safari World. And imagine Disney in Africa. And you know, we were getting like 4,000 people a day coming to this place. Um, and wow. at, he had both the, the kind of Jurassic Park. You have the game reserve, but then all the entertainment for the families, the kids, the restaurants. And there was even like water kind of park um, areas. So we took runoffs from the river. Um, and my father kind of created these things where you jump on your tube, follow it down. There's a whirlpool in the middle and off you go, get out at the end and run back up and do it. Well, oh I came gosh. off the tube in the middle and I was flowing down and the snake was coming into the water um, as I was coming down. We just, we collided. Um, it bit me on my foot 
um, it was pretty quick. And I mean, I probably scared it as much as it scared me. And the experience of probably being in that churning water was scaring both of us. So it was kind of a, a triple whammy for, for all. And it looked like a viper and we thought potentially a puff adder at the time, but we didn't know. Now that's that's the worst thing is not knowing in that environment because anti-venom, it doesn't matter if you're an adult or a kid, but especially if you're a child because you you, you can't handle things as strong as uh, as an adult can. But if you get the wrong anti-venom, you know, you could die quicker than than the snake bite itself. So we had to wait to Gosh. see what the reaction was going to be. And normally you'll you'll feel a burning sensation or um, other areas where your breathing might change and etc. So I was very, very lucky that it was considered a dry bite where actually there's something that people don't really know. We see the bites in documentaries, but in reality, snakes actually don't often envenomate. It's more of a warning. And sometimes they'll even strike without biting. In my case, I did get that in, but very luckily it didn't envenomate me. And at seven years old, you know, I, I would have been in big trouble if it was a puff adder. But then my most horrific was probably three months later. And this is what really upset my mom. I was walking with my brother through this tall grass to get to one of the, we were on a little adventure. And the grass, you ever seen um, Jurassic Park um, mm -hmm. where the velociraptors are coming through the grass and it's like that grass was just moving like this towards me. And I was in shock, kind of like, what is, what is this? It, it was, must have been tiny. So we thought a mouse would have, and the snake just came out of the grass and it was long and it bit me on the exact same foot. And I'm, you know, <laughs> what, what is up with that foot? That foot's been very kind to me over the years. So <laughs> thank God it didn't do too um, And it hung on to me. I got such a fright. I jumped and the fangs hooked in. I ran for about 40 meters until we got to this wooden bridge and it got caught on it and naturally came off. And we both looked at each other in like shock in that moment. That moment has given me more nightmares than probably any other snake experience. Um, I've come face to face with snakes. I've been close. I've had, you know, near, near misses. I've had two bites, but that one was, yeah, that was really freaky for me. And I don't know why snakes have always haunted me. The very first night back in South Africa when I went to film, in my room when I came back from dinner, there was a viper, a night adder uh, in the room itself. And I had to I had to get it out the room. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I don't know why snakes have always followed me, but it's um, I, I'm not a big fan. However, I, I do need to be clear. I, I would never want any harm on the snake, even if it bit me. Um, I mean, the, the worst case is if unfortunately you if, if you're in that environment for anyone that hopefully never has to go through it. But sometimes if you if you are bitten, you 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 will if you don't know what the snake is you will likely need to kill it in order to get it to the doctor to see what the venom is going to be and i for me that's also kind of tragic because I, I i i don't want any harm on the animal you know it's it's not really something i i don't like them but i don't want harm upon them the fear of them is really interesting because they they test your senses in a different different way they prepare you for things that you might not be used to and I, again it, it people might think it's silly or strange you'd be amazed what fear can do to someone you know you can be so much more alert in the right environment or the wrong environment you know those fears will will keep you alert so sometimes they can be a big positive i just can't even hack the idea of a snake latching onto you i mean both of those situations sound equally horrific you want to hear something even worse oh we, my had a, gosh. we had a we had a honeymoon couple that was staying over at the at the lodge and um, they again came back from dinner and one night um, they hop into bed the guy puts his head on the pillow and the pillow moves this uh, snake had gone inside the pillowcase on the bottom and moved he jumps up and the snake just comes out 
The next morning, the lady finds a snake in her drawer with underwear. Boomslang. <gasps> a boomslang is incredibly dangerous because th there's no anti-venom for them. And it's, it's a tough bite because they're back fang, but still, she pulls out the drawer and the snake is right there. So, oh my God. <laughs> But, you know, when you put yourself in that environment, you've got to be prepared. These things will happen. I mean, that is honestly, I think that is one of my nightmares. Like, I think what you've just depicted to me actually may be some of my own nightmares. I've definitely had, <laughs> I've had vivid nightmares before, you know, trying to get somewhere and you're in a snake pit for no reason at all. Um, that is very scary. It is their world, isn't it? And mm -hmm. God, sure. the idea of that grass moving before and you could, oh gosh, that is, that's too much. <laughs> yeah, I know it, it, it was more a, a stunned moment from me and then fear straight afterwards. But uh, anyway, lessons, lessons learned in some ways. Lessons learned, snakes, snakes exist, the, the, the end. <laughs> So, and they do bite. <laughs> they do. Oh, no. Talking of the last year, it's obviously been horrendous. It's not been a kind year to humanity. But I'd also be really interested to know what impact has COVID-19 had on wildlife and conservation? Awful. Um, and sadly, you know, something that the media didn't really pay very much attention to. It came out quite early about some of the problems, but they really didn't hammer it. Um, you know, media's got to focus on, you know, their prime time elements that unfortunately is important to everyone, but also sometimes not as important as the other bigger things that are that are mattering. You know, there's a lot of things that are going on elsewhere and the poaching went up just ridiculous amounts. I mean, we were talking sort of 100 elephants a day. Um, were being poached simply because no travel, no money, no money for game ranges, no money for security, you know, naturally national parks and places like that, just kind of, you know, let things be. People go sit at home, poachers get in and they start taking animals. So the black market trade thrives and, you know, animal life uh, is sadly um, put out a loss there. It was awful. I and mean, we're not just talking about Africa. We're talking about jaguars over in um, the Amazon. We're talking about tigers in India, orangutans in Malaysia and places like that, deforestation causing problems and it is sad when you put it into perspective like that and I know you were speaking then as well about you know lessons um, that humans can learn and I just kind of want to ask as well what can the wild teach us about wider humanity huge amounts I I think that was one of the things that I really wanted the documentary to, to focus on was um, not the sort of beauty necessarily, but the, the the reality of where we come from. I think, as I said to you earlier, you know, we were all wild ourselves once. And as, in some respects, we still are in some cases when we travel you, to Australia, when you go to a foreign place. The wild can teach you so many different things that are so similar. You know, people say, well, a, a lion and a rhino are completely different. Not true. What are the lessons you have in between? You'll learn respect. You'll learn patience. You'll learn understanding. You'll learn reasoning. You'll learn um sort of diplomacy you know which one's going to go for the other or how will they handle a situation how do they handle their territory that is no different than when a human is dealing with a foreign culture um mm. you know a foreign religion you know is something that you're not used to when you travel to a different country people's customs um terrain and everything is different uh, same thing with with wildlife you know it's exactly the same when you look at a, a lion who who kills a human protecting her cub but then the human kills the lion or you see a shark that's gone and attacked a human out surfing and they then go and hunt and kill the shark well we don't do that to a human you know mm. um they're simply protecting a mother protecting her her cub 
is no different than how a mother would be protecting her child here. There are so many different similarities. You know, somebody walks into your house, a warthog walks into a lion's perimeter, a leopard walks in, you're in their terrain. You go into the ocean, you're in their terrain. And I think there are so many things that are, are very, very similar that we need to remember. And often we, we forget. I was trying very hard to bridge that message uh, and show the connection to a lot of people because that there are huge similarities. It's just fascinating. Going slightly off piece here, but you've made me sort of think in context of other shows about wild animals. I know that this time last year, Tiger King was a huge, mm -hmm. huge phenomenon. What are your thoughts on seeing wild animals and tigers in cages? When you look at it from the environment of Tiger King, for me personally, disgusting. And, you know, all of those characters were, for me, very hypocritical. I mean, uh, Joe Exotic, I mean, you know, he was an entertainer and at least in some respects he had more space sometimes for the animals, but the way he was looking after it. The, the problem that I have is that I think if you have a sanctuary that's a genuine one, I mean, Carol Baskin, in many respects for me, was far more hypocritical than anybody because, you know, she was having a go at Joey, Joe was having a go at her, but her place was no different. And I mean, you know, the whole husband thing became the entertainment factor versus the the whole show actually became about the entertainment factor not the the tigers and i think that's also another message i also have a, a a challenge where i really would love to see wildlife free or have the choice to die how they want to you know not something that is caged up but at the same point if you have a sanctuary where there might be cages but on a bigger scale certainly like my father did and, and there are many other people that have done something similar it's not just about my dad you know i'm, I'm just i refer to my dad because i grew up there but you know something that my father did where he had huge enclosures where there is space to roam there is space to still call it your territory there's still space to be safe but have adventure i think that is absolutely fine but it's also in some styles of today a necessity sadly because of so much poaching because of so much killing I mean, you look at tigers in India and how much they've been depleted. And then you hear the fact that there's actually more tigers in captivity than there are in the entire wild. I find like horrific, mm. you know, and if you have something where like you have, uh, imagine like Chesington becomes like a huge conservation sanctuary for, for tigers for the whole space fine. Okay, that's cool. You know, yes, you might have people at a distance, but they're not being poked, they're not being prodded, they're not being forced to be on show and drugged and all this stuff. Fine, at least for now, while we fix the other problem and then rehabilitate them into the wild. Sure, I, I can understand that. And, and I think I could say I agree with it based under our current society of what we've done. Again, humans have effed this up pretty badly. And to the point that some are already extinct, you know, we have messed that up. And uh, mm. we have to take responsibility. And the other problem with Tiger King is that it really became about the show. It didn't become about the tigers. And we all love entertainment, myself included. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to uh, sit here and say that, you know, I, I didn't enjoy it. I did enjoy the entertainment factor. And like everyone else was questioning, you know, did Carol do it or didn't she? Of course she did. Anyway, <clears throat> but... Um... <laughs> <laughs> I just wish that people sometimes focus on the boring stuff because the boring stuff is actually really what matters. And that's a really hard thing to, you know, where is the message about the tigers? What is the actions that are happening? All that we heard afterwards was like, oh, they've reopened the case for Carol. I'm like, mm. really? Like what's happening with the tigers guys? Oh, nobody wants to watch them being moved to a new location. That's the problem that we have with society. And I can understand entertainment, but we need to focus on the boring, sadly. 
And once we get to the boring, we can get back to the exciting, seeing them in the wild and going out to look for them. There's nothing better than going on that adventure. The boring stuff, sadly, is the important stuff. You're so right. You know, the devil is often in the detail, isn't it? And you often don't really mm. want to sit and sift through that. But It's like when you go to school, you know, you got to do the boring stuff to get the grade. The grade gets you the opportunity to go for the adventure. But the biggest thing is you got to start with kids. Education has got to change across the board. Kids need to be taught early. We as adults, we as governments, at the point of where we're at, we're not going to change the next steps. If kids who are the next generation learn early, they will influence as we get older. Same with uh, government. Get a kid who's grown up. It doesn't have to be the same as me, but at least kind of get some kind of exposure to that environment and a taste for love versus taste for hate. It's got to start early with kids and that will create the change. Absolutely. I think that's just a really lovely way to round off the episode. Thank you so, so much for coming on Educate. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I've, I've enjoyed it and you had fantastic questions. So thanks for bringing part of my life back to life. I mean, I can't wait to see where your life goes next. I'm a very engaged viewer. I also would love to say, if you ever want to come back on Educate, please let me know. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime you need. Well, I hear from a birdie that uh, somebody once went on Take Me Out. So I think there's, <laughs> there's something to talk about there, if I'm honest. But uh, today we're on conservation but maybe next time we'll be on Take Me Out and talking all about that. <laughs> we'll be happy to. <laughs> Thank you so much. Lovely to chat. Well, Peter Mayer, what a brilliant lesson. Class, please repeat after me. Don't jump over a rock if you don't know what's behind it. Rather like, don't click on the email link, just because it says you've won a free iPad. All of these are transferable skills, everyone. The metaphor applies to lots of different things. <laughs> Make sure everybody, please keep your eyes peeled for the release of The Boy in the Wild, which is going out on Apple TV this year. Find Peter on Instagram at Peter Mayer Actor. Thanks so much, Peter, for teaching a brilliant lesson on all things conservation and filming. If you would like to keep up with all Educate out of hours social chatter, of course you do, honestly. Please follow me on Instagram at educate underscore podcast. And as always, if you're passionate and informed about a topic and you want to teach the world a lesson, please slide on into my DMs, but not like a snake because I will cancel you. Have a fab week and remember to stay educated. Stay educated.